This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Leia Redmond Chang is an author and historian with a background in comparative literature and research. Her latest book, Young Queens, is a fascinating and highly insightful historical biography of three Renaissance women exercising power in a world dominated by men. It tells the dramatic and intertwined stories of Catherine de' Medici, Queen of France from 1547 to 1559, Elizabeth de Valois, Queen of Spain from 1559 to 1568, and Mary, Queen of Scots, who was Queen of Scotland from 1542 to 1567. Fusing new archival research with rich narrative prose, the book also asks profoundly modern questions about women, gender and power. Before Leia joins us from her home in Washington, D.C., here's a clip of Olivia Dowd narrating Young Queens. Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power. The young girl lay tucked in her bed, her small body wrapped in the black habit of a Benedictine nun. Under her cap, her hair was clipped short in a quick and rough job. In the distance, there was a swelling commotion. Footsteps approached. She waited in the room where she slept every night, in the belly of a stone-walled convent of nuns known as Lemurate, situated on the Via Ghibellina, at the northern edge of Florence. The convent's massive wooden door separated the cloistered nuns and novices from the bustle and disorder of secular Florentine life. Lemurate was supposed to be a haven of pious female devotion, of spiritual stillness. But in the small hours of the 20th of July, 1530, 11-year-old Caterina de' Medici felt only fear. Caterina was not a nun, nor was she a novice. She was a guest at Lemurate, a hostage of the Republican Council that ruled Florence. Earlier that evening, soldiers and magistrates from the council had arrived at the convent's door, torches lighting their way. The men were agitated. Three years earlier, in 1527, the council had wrested control of the city from the Medici family. Now, however, they had lost their grip. The Medici Pope, Clement VII, was besieging Florence with the help of the Spanish King and Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Food and supplies were dwindling, citizens were revolting, and the council had exhausted their options. All but one. On that August night, the councillors descended upon the Via Ghibellina to retrieve their young hostage, hoping to compel the Pope to call off his troops. Leia Redmond Chang, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here. As we've just heard from that clip, you start the book in 1530 with the dramatic events of the abduction of Caterina de' Medici. She's an 11-year-old orphan. She's being held as a hostage and she is about to show the metal that will come to define her when she becomes Queen of France later in her life. 
But those events also throw light on the political context of the 1530s, which is a, a time of rivalry between great dynasties in Europe. Yes, you have this 11-year-old girl, Catherine de' Medici, who finds herself a political prisoner and in some ways a pawn between rival families or caught up in these much larger wars, um, the Italian wars, which were really the battle for uh, the domination of Italy between France and Spain. Both France and Spain have um, imperial ambitions at the time and for generations had been fighting to dominate Italy for a couple of reasons. You know, both kingdoms really want to add to their territorial gains, but also both kingdoms are fighting for control of the Mediterranean and also other routes that simplify travel, uh, for instance, up to the Netherlands. And so little Catherine de Medici, you know, she really probably didn't have any sense of the larger geopolitics in which she was playing a role, but she really is a pivotal figure, the pawn who's being traded and fought over. Yeah, I mean, it's all very much Game of Thrones. You've got these mighty dynasties, the Habsburgs control Spain and its dominions. You've got the Valois who control France. And as you say, here's little Caterina being used as the pawn of a king in the form of Francis I of France and a pope, a Medici pope. She's part of the notorious Medici family who are the bankers of Florence and other parts of Italy. And her life is fairly much planned out for her from her birth. She's indicative of the way in which women were used as trading chips by the great aristocratic families to forge alliances and build power. Yes, you say women, but I would also qualify that and say it's it's girls. Mm. It's young girls who are being used as these trading chips. And I think that's something that we often forget. You know, this this history, it's happening a long time ago. We're used to the way history is told over hundreds of years. And it's easy to think of these girls as older than they are. But they're actually just children. And that is, as you say, very much the fate of many girls of Catherine's social class. She's a little bit different because she's noble on her mother's side, but she is a commoner on her father's side, the Medici side. But because the Medici are so powerful and her her distant cousin is, is the Pope, she is, um, for all intents and purposes, treated uh, just like any other aristocratic girl of her time would have been. And she is married off very young, to the son of Francis I, who is the King of France. And it's his younger son. So in many ways, she's never expected to become queen, but it's still forging a political alliance. So it's actually somewhat of a surprise when she ends up becoming queen consort of France when Henry II's older brother dies, and then Francis dies. 
Yes. I've studied the Renaissance for years, but I, but I think with this book, I really came to understand uh, the people and the culture better than I ever had before. And one thing that I, I kind of saw across the board is that once a person is in a position of power, they do everything possible in the moment to consolidate that power and make the most of it. So as you said, Francis I, King of France, chooses to marry Catherine to his younger son. And it's part of a, a, a political power grab. He's forging a relationship with Clement VII, who's the Pope, in the hopes of gaining territories in Italy. And so he makes this decision without looking too far down the line. You know, it, it's true. He doesn't marry Catherine to his oldest son and heir. Um, she would have been seen as inappropriate for that because she's a Medici on her father's side and not a royal princess. Mm. Uh, but he does think that she's good enough for his second son, Henry, Duke of Orléans, and um, he and his father do not get along. So he's an obedient son, and he marries Catherine, and there are definitely good imperial reasons for this marriage to take place, but it was never really part of the plan that Henry would eventually become the King of France and that Catherine would become his queen consort. And when it becomes clear that Henry is going to inherit, he's still a teenager, and so is Catherine. And they both seem a little bit shocked <laughs> by the <laughs> developments. And, and, and Francis isn't particularly pleased either. But this is the way it works, right, in Dynasty. And Francis isn't going to break the rules. Um, and so both Henry and Catherine are put on this path to eventually inherit the throne. And that's when it becomes clear to Catherine that she has to fulfill the number one purpose of a queen consort, and that is to bear children to provide the next heirs to the throne. And simply because she is so young, she has some problem conceiving. And you get really into the nitty-gritty of the letters that are circulating round court and her own writings, which show just how much this praise on her. Yeah, and for Catherine, this need to bear a son and heir is is really important for a couple of reasons. So first, it goes back to the original agreement of her marriage and her dowry. She's married to Henry uh, with the promise that she's going to bring with her a number of different territories in Italy. The problem is that her uncle, Clement VII, dies before he can fulfill this promise. And it's not clear that he ever was going to fulfill the promise anyways. I mean, the Medici, actually everyone in this time period, they, they have a way of, you know, reneging on, on promises made. So, you know, then she's sort of just there without having brought any of the wealth that was originally promised to Francis through this marriage. And so she, she really has to uh, get pregnant and, and bear the heir because that at least would give her some purpose at the French court. And this is particularly true because Henry, her husband, doesn't love her. And it's very clear that he's in love with his older mistress, uh, Diane de Poitiers. And Catherine is just there as the wife. So if she does not have children, there is every possibility that she could be repudiated uh, because there are other and better marriages to be made. 
one that might have pleased Henry more and one that might have brought either a better alliance or a better dowry or some other kind of advantage to the royal crown of France. And Catherine is barren for 10 years, which is a really long time. And as you say, probably because she was so young at the beginning, there may have been biological factors. There could have been factors in her marriage. Uh, You know, you kind of get the impression that maybe Henry didn't really like sleeping with her so much. And Catherine really is desperate. And and you do really sense that in her letters. It's, It's one of the moments where the tone just jumps out at you at how how scared she was, how she tried everything. Um, She said prayers, she made pilgrimages, she drank potions, which is really just the equivalent of fertility medicines today. But she was just desperate because if she were repudiated and sent back to Italy, she would have had to go live in a convent and, you know, stay there for the rest of her life with very little chance of remarriage. So everything is on the line for her. Now, fortunately for her, she does begin to have children, and quite a lot of them in in yeah. quite quite short order. <laughs> and there is this wonderful institution called the Putty Corps, the Little Court, where not just her children, but the children of aristocracy and royal families from across Catholic Europe gather. And that's where her daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, and Mary, Queen of Scots, meet. And for most of the next decade, these three women's lives are inextricably linked. Mary, Queen of Scots, is pretty much adopted as a member of the French royal family and eventually ends up marrying into the family. And you paint a portrait of a very precocious, very beautiful young Mary Queen of Scots who is being groomed to be the royal it girl of the 16th century. That's right. I love the terms you use. Precocious. I think that that is exactly right. And I love the term it girl. And I think in many ways that is the best way to describe the young Mary Queen of Scots. She comes to the French royal court at the age of five she joins the Petit Cour, the French royal nursery, which is teeming with children, both Catherine's own children. She ends up having 10 children of her own, two of whom who die in infancy, but eight uh, little children who, uh, you know, it's one of the most fantastic fertility stories in the end. Mm-hmm. But, you know, all these kids are in this nursery a few miles away from the main court, and they're there partially to protect them. It was It was a safe place. It was mostly children. They were incredibly well supervised and taken care of. And it was a wonderful place to start building these networks, these friendships and alliances between these uh, aristocratic families that everyone hoped would continue on into adulthood. So Mary comes at the age of five, and she's older than all the other royal children, She's quite bright. I I wouldn't say that she's exactly the heavy intellect that the young Elizabeth Tudor was. I, I do make that comparison in the book. But what Mary is able to do is marshal a tremendous amount of charisma. She's a child who, from very early on, was aware of her own magnetism, probably because so many people praised her. She had something, a very disarming quality about her. And she also was 
very much a political asset to France. So when she arrives in France, all the important French nobles, including the king, Henry, and his wife, you know, Catherine de' Medici, praise her. And you know how little kids are. They kind of mm. soak this up and they internalize it. And then she kind of ends up ruling the nursery. I mean, I can kind of picture her like a child in the schoolyard who just realizes that she's the leader and everyone else is the follower. And she starts to create this dynamic that just gets reproduced the way it often does, right? And she becomes this uh, shining light of the French royal family and also, quite importantly, of her French family. So... Mary is, on her mother's side, descended from a very powerful French family called the Guises. And on her father's side, she's the Queen of Scots because she's the daughter of James V, who dies when she's a baby. So she is um, the sort of political asset of the French royal family, but she's also the shining star and the political pawn of her French relatives, the Guises. And the Guises have this wonderful family motto which is one for all and all for the family. They are absolutely out for themselves and not above using feminine guile through the Guise women to get what they want. And they are the major Catholic power brokers within France. Yes. And, you know, I think that the Guises are sort of marked by the reputation that they acquire towards the end of the century as being these almost rabid, ultra-Catholic, fiercely ambitious family. I think in the middle of the century, when, when Mary is a, is a little girl, they're not quite as rabid <laughs> as, <laughs> as they will become, but they are very pious. And they are incredibly ambitious. And they are also, as you say, the motto is tout pour une. You know, each one was in it for the family, as if they're all part of this corporate endeavor to push the family forward. And, you know, the men are very powerful. But I have to say, the women are really powerful, too. And you almost mm. get the feeling that the women are sort of running the show. But the other thing that really drives the Guises that I find absolutely incredible is that this ambition is fueled by a genuine affection for each other. This is a family that really loves each other. This, this seems to be a genuine fondness for each other that actually works for their dynastic and court ambitions. And their ambitions seem to have been realized when Mary, Queen of Scots, is married to the French heir, Francis II, the eldest son of Catherine and Henry II. And for 18 months after Henry II's rather unexpected death in a jousting accident, she is Queen Consort of France and Queen of Scots. Yes, and that in some ways, was exactly the Guises' plan. They really raised Mary to be the queen consort of France. And being the reigning queen of Scotland, in some ways, was treated as secondary um, and more like, you know, a kind of ornament that could be deployed to further Guise ambitions in France. 
So France is is definitely considered the superior kingdom. It's the older kingdom. It's wealthier. It's a little bit more cultured. Uh, France sees Scotland almost like a French outpost at the time. So, you know, the crown and glory for the Guises is when Mary becomes the queen consort of France. And one of the sort of most important themes of Mary's life is that she was really raised to be a consort much more than she was raised to be a reigning queen. And that is where her skill set lies, I would say. (laughs) She Mm. really knows how to be a very good wife to a king. And so when she does become the queen consort, this is the apotheosis of Guy's ambition. The problem is, is that it happens a little bit before they thought it was going to happen. (laughs) Um, Henry II dies completely unexpectedly, you know, thanks to this jousting accident. So the kingdom and the Guises and certainly Mary and her young husband, Francis, were completely unprepared to take charge. Now, the Guises are quick thinkers. And because they always, you know, work with each other and in tandem, they were able to regroup and, you know, kind of take control of the throne quickly. But Mary is just a teen, you know, and her husband is even younger than she is. Um, and he himself is, he's a little bit weak in body. He, he, he's not the strongest intellectually. And so it's, it's a very vulnerable time for the crown of France. Um, and then, of course, Francis dies 18 months after he accedes to the throne of France. So, you know, the Guise moment of glory is actually relatively short-lived. Now, if the Guises are very politically savvy, so is Catherine de' Medici, and she creates the role of queen mother. After her husband dies, she stays in place, not as a regent so much, but as a trusted motherly advisor to her son, Francis II. And then when he dies, she stays in place again as the queen mother, always clad in black for her son, Charles the Ninth, and when he dies a few years later for her son Henry the Third, she is there as a presence, as a sign of strength and stability within the French monarchy when France itself is becoming more and more polarized between the Guise faction and another aristocratic family, the Bourbons, who are more supportive of the rising tide of Protestantism and the Guises become the defenders of the Catholic faith in France. And it's only really Catherine de' Medici that stops full-blown civil war. Yes. You know, when she first creates this role of Queen Mother, it's actually a time in her life that I find to be a little bit obscure. While her husband was still alive she really didn't venture too much out of her role as consort and mother to the royal children. On a couple of occasions, she does serve as regent of France, but in a in a very conventional way, you know, when her husband is off at war. And, and this is quite standard. Husbands often did this. And, you know, they're not really truly giving the power over to their wives. Often queen consorts are sort of the figurehead regents and a number of counselors are actually the ones who are making sure that everything is running smoothly while the king is away. 
So, so she did serve in these political roles, but she doesn't take an outsized political role. It's only after Henry dies that she starts to do this, but it's a little bit slow. And it's not clear to me whether or not she really wanted this kind of powerful political role or if she was stepping in because she really felt that Francis needed her. And he certainly did Mm. seem to lean on his mother. Or if she's trying to protect him because she can see how the Guises are sort of jumping in and commandeering the power of the throne. But it is almost like a form of practice where she starts to try on this idea of, of, of becoming a political player. And when she starts to develop the role of motherhood as a kind of legitimate political role. And then, as you say, you know, Francis dies. Catherine really feels she has no choice but to take on the role of regent once her younger son, Charles, age 10, accedes to the throne. But she's still quite careful. She's very politically savvy. So Catherine knows that she really shouldn't take on the title of regent. She does call herself the gouvernante, which means like governor. <laughs> so, you know, she, she's assuring everybody that in her role as mother, she will make sure that everything runs smoothly in the name of her son. But she's also careful not to seem to grab too much power. And because she's careful in this way, she uh, manages to more or less get everyone to agree. And partially it works also because, as you say, France is becoming more polarized between the Bourbons and the Guises, and neither side wants the other side to take charge. So Catherine is seen as sort of an acceptable neutral middle ground. And that's how she's able to politicize the role of queen mother and and Mm. acquire a certain amount of political power. It's very noticeable that in an age where men are jockeying for power and influence, she again and again compromises and conciliates and builds bridges. And another example of how she does this is by helping to arrange the marriage of her eldest daughter, the third queen in this book, Elizabeth de Valois, to the King of Spain, Philip II, effectively bringing an end to these ruinous Italian wars. And by creating that alliance, she brings peace between France and Spain. Yes. So France, as you say, had been mired in these Italian wars against Spain for, you know, multiple generations. These were wars that kings inherited. (laughs) Mm. And, you know, by the time we get to the time of Elizabeth's father, Henry II, everyone is getting tired. They also, all the Catholic kingdoms are having to deal with the rising tide of Protestantism. And so that is starting to command their attention. So Elizabeth's marriage is arranged in order to seal the peace between Henry II and Philip II. Uh, At the time that Elizabeth's marriage is brokered, she's 13 years old, and Philip II is about 20 years older than her. 
and uh, Elizabeth is scheduled to be his third wife, uh, which, you know, I, I, I put myself in her shoes. This must have been terrifying for a number of reasons, not only because she's still a child. Also, Philip had been the enemy for, you know, as long as she could remember. He mm, was always mm. the enemy. So, you know, as a 13-year-old, this couldn't have been the most inviting prospect. But she was, you know, the daughter and she had to obey. And this is what these dynastic marriages were. And it really was an important marriage because it was going to bring about a, a very necessary peace. So Henry II actually dies in that jousting accident just days after Elizabeth's wedding. He had been participating in the joust as part of the marriage celebrations. So that also must have been very traumatic for her, you know, that basically her father is mortally wounded um, at the scene of her wedding. But Catherine does realize that it is really the only smart political decision she can make to send Elizabeth off to this marriage because it is so necessary to keep the peace between France and Spain. Because her young teenage son has just acceded to the throne, the crown is actually very, very vulnerable. There's a lot of fear that Protestant rebels will take advantage of this and, and rebel and perhaps incite some sort of civil war. And so France can't afford to have both civil war and yet another confrontation with Spain. So the best thing that Catherine can do is send her daughter away to help maintain the new alliance with Spain and keep, keep Spain at bay for as long as possible. And as you say, she does manage to do so uh, for as long as Elizabeth is alive. Through the letters between the two of them, which many of which you reproduce in the book, they clearly were incredibly close, Catherine and Elizabeth. Reading those letters, you forget that they're queens. It is a very close mother and daughter relationship. And yet, always in the background, you have Catherine trying to extend the influence of the French monarchy into the Spanish court. She tries to lobby Philip II through Elizabeth on behalf of Mary, Queen of Scots, at one point. So she's both this very wonderful, loving mother, but also machinating in the background and, and, and being a bit of a helicopter mum, actually, I thought. Oh, she is such a helicopter mum. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I think Catherine has this reputation, right, of being this uber mom, And as you say, uh, being somewhat Machiavellian, and one of my reasons for writing this book is I've always been a Catherine fan, and I always wanted to create a more complex portrait of Catherine than you normally get. And what I saw in those letters to Elizabeth is a very loving relationship that's also somewhat controlling, right? Mm. It's, it's complex, like human beings are. And, um, you know, Catherine and Elizabeth are very close, and they... They do love each other. And, you know, Catherine, she loved her daughter and she really worried about her daughter. And at the same time, that also gets a little muddied by her political responsibilities to France and um, her, her seeing in Elizabeth the opportunity to exert some influence in Spain that will in turn benefit France. 
you know, there are many times where we see Catherine's desperation because things are falling apart in France. Was Catherine just so desperate that she really saw no other choice but to use her teenage daughter as her kind of, you know, political agent in Spain? And it probably went back and forth a little bit. And of course, these three queens are not the only women in power in Europe at the time. There's also Elizabeth Tudor of England, and she is inextricably tied into the story of Catherine, Elizabeth and Mary, as we will discuss after the break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with Leah Redmond-Chang, author of Young Queens. Now, in the first part, we discussed the character of the three young queens and the political and religious context in which they came to power. The second part of the title of the book is The Price of Power. And I got the sense from reading this book you see a lot of parallels between the position of Catherine, Elizabeth and Mary and women in positions of power in the 20th and 21st century. One of the things that inspired me to write this book is that it started out as a as kind of a family saga. I wanted to write about Elizabeth de Valois and then I wanted to write about her relationship with her mother, Catherine, and then Mary is such an important figure in their relationship with each other that I expanded it out to Mary. And what struck me was that, you know, these are three women who, they're all queens, but they have a slightly different relationship to their crowns. Um, Mm. First of all, they're, they're queens of different kingdoms, right? So France, Spain, and Scotland. But they're also different kinds of queens. So Catherine is a consort and a queen mother. Elizabeth of Valois is just a consort. And uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, is both a consort and a reigning queen. And actually, towards the end of her reign in Scotland, she actually becomes a queen mother too. So she occupies all three roles. So so there's, there's sort of different ranks going on and different kingdoms. But they did all seem to have to deal with the same challenges. Um, They often answered these challenges in different ways, but something fundamental about these challenges was the same across the board. So suddenly this this grouping of three women almost becomes a a, a test case. It sort of proved my point that these challenges that these women face are because they are female and Mm, because mm. they are young. So so that was fascinating to me, to, to kind of see them run into the same challenges in different kingdoms, despite the differences in their individual situations. Bringing it into the 20th and 21st century, well, I, you know, yes, I have to admit, you know, we're living in this time, especially in the States, right? I'm an American, mm. where we're having this sort of larger conversation about 
women <laughs> and, you know, equality, you know, whether it's Me Too or the questions of abortion rights in the United States. But, you know, sort of what are the conditions or what is the relationship between women and their bodies and power? How does power get enacted on women's bodies? How can women, you know, wield power in our culture? How are they agents of power? How do they become pawns? These seem to me to be actually very similar questions, but just 500 years later. And it was sort of startling to me to be able to see a kind of straight line, particularly when you talk about the politicizing of women's bodies from the Renaissance to today. Hmm. And to see the question of women's bodies being so integral to the building of political systems. I, I think that's true today, and it was certainly true then. It's just that the nature of those political systems looks different. There certainly seems to be a sense of nervousness, both in the 16th century and 21st century, when a woman achieves power. In the 16th century, when a woman came to the throne, it signalled a vulnerability to regime change. And we see that in Scotland, where the, the very sovereignty of Scotland is vulnerable as soon as Mary becomes Queen of Scots, aged nine days old. And there's also constant questions around Queen Elizabeth I of England. Oh, well, you've got to get married, you've got to have an heir, otherwise what's going to happen to the future of Albion? Yes, there is a nervousness. I kind of wonder, though, if th there isn't generally a nervousness, right, about regime change or about monarchy in general. It, I mean, mm. the fact that it just hinges on the sort of lifespan of one person, I'm just wondering if the nervousness is kind of amplified, right, or when a woman inherits the throne or when a child inherits the throne. Mm. Um, to some degree, I, I think it's sort of similar because it it might just highlight the, the vulnerability of monarchy in general, but certainly a woman is seen as weak and quite vulnerable because of this requirement, right, that the, that the throne passes uh, biologically from parent to child, right? And so the queen, if she's a consort or if she's a ruling queen, she still has to bear the heir to ensure the continuation of the dynasty. That, of course, means she has to get married. And the way the Renaissance thinks, you know, as soon as you have a husband coming in there, he is the stronger player. He is the stronger mind. He is going to take over. So one of the reasons why the French, through you know, what they call Salic law, do not allow a woman to inherit the throne is to keep these foreign husbands, you know, from coming in and taking over, ensuring that the throne remains French. Whereas for someone like Mary, Queen of Scots, or for Elizabeth Tudor, you know, the concern is always that they're going to marry someone, uh, a man who's stronger than they are, and then that foreign power is going to swoop in and commandeer the power of the Scottish throne or the power of the English throne and change alliances, right? Change agendas. 
And under Elizabeth Tudor, you know, the real nervousness is that now that the Protestant Elizabeth has taken over, the powers that be in her council are very anxious that she retain a certain Protestant hold over the kingdom. So they're very nervous about what kind of husband she will choose. And at the same time, they really do want her to choose a husband so that she can have a child who will inherit the throne after her, which will help consolidate her own power on the throne. And the same thing is true with Mary, Queen of Scots. You know, certainly by the time she gets back to Scotland as an 18-year-old, there is this concern about which kind of husband is she going to choose. And that also becomes a concern for France because France has this long-standing alliance with Scotland. And Catherine de' Medici is very nervous about the kind of husband Mary will choose in case that shifts alliances away from France towards another kingdom. Elizabeth Tudor is another giant on this Renaissance stage. She does appear in the book, but I wondered if originally she took a larger part in the book. She is such a big character, contemporaneous to the other queens that you feature. Her influence is felt in all three of their realms. Yes. In the first draft of this book, Elizabeth was the fourth queen. There was there were originally going to be four young queens uh. in this book. <laughs> yes. But as I like to, to say, they, they were elbowing each other for space. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so no one was getting, you know, their fair due. So Elizabeth Tudor got demoted. And in some ways it sort of made sense because the queens that remain as the first tier characters, they're, they're all related to each other and they're all family and they all knew each other quite well. So... So it makes sense for them. But Elizabeth Tudor is a fascinating character. And, and she also is an interesting person to study when we're thinking about women in power in the 20th and 21st centuries, because she takes this alternate path. And she's sort of hailed as, you know, this strong woman. But she actually doesn't do what a queen is supposed to do. No. <laughs> she breaks some rules with potentially disastrous consequences for her kingdom. You know, she... She doesn't get married. And whether or not that was intentional or not, or she just sort of missed the boat, is still a subject of debate. But she decides not to do it. And on the one hand, that does allow her to retain sovereign authority in a way that the other queens can't quite. Um, and certainly not her older sister, Mary Tudor. But it does mean that, that the inheritance of the throne is not secure at all. And, and so to some degree, she only succeeds as a powerful woman because she fails at one of the most important duties. And I think other people have said that one of the reasons why she comes off as being a you know strong queen is because she kind of s stepped into the role that a man would play, mm, you know, mm. almost by denying the kind of biological reproductive duties of the queen, right, which is a queen's first duty. That's how she's able to retain power. So, you know, the question then is for today, like, is the only way for a woman in power to behave like a man. And yet our, our, our whole culture doesn't allow that to happen by focusing on gender almost from the get-go. You know, often it, it, it starts by like, what are these women wearing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? How are they channeling fashion? And, you know, fashion is very powerful. I mean, I think that, you know, Catherine de Medici shows us that. Fashion is very powerful politically. But it's also very much associated in our culture with the feminine. 
So there needs to be, well, I wish I knew what there needs to be done. You know, I wish I could just prescribe here. Here, women is what you need to do. To, you know, to for for women to finally have their 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 due in the political world. But maybe the answer is just keep doing it, right? Like the more that women are in these positions of power, the more familiar it becomes. The more difficult it is to sort of wield the familiar misogynist tropes against women in power. Well, I think one thing that can be done, and, and certainly it's what you've done with this book, is take a different approach to the history rather than the sort of traditional, probably rather male view of, oh, we had this battle and he beat him and so many people were slaughtered and it cost so much money, actually to do what you call close reading and, and bring a literary mindset to studying the letters, the correspondence, the diaries of these women actually shows them as human beings rather than somebody else's totem or figurehead. And I think narrative history is long overdue to reveal the characters behind the titles. Narrative history is how we start to change the story. So you you talked about, you know, kind of how these women are have been received. Elizabeth Tudor is a strong woman. Mm. Uh, Catherine is sort of an awkward <laughs> figure. I would have said that, you know, Catherine is often vilified, you know, even mm. today in Hollywood. She's vilified because it's easy and it, it, it resonates with people. And I think our, our culture is sort of fascinated with, with bad women. But I think the way we start to reverse that is by telling different stories. And I, and I felt very strongly that what I wanted to write had to be very narrative. Mm. It, it really had to feel like a story. And it really had to talk about character because that's what I was seeing in the letters. You know, I, I really saw these women who I, I grew quite close to, all of them. I was very, very fond mm. of them. And I wanted to just put that on the page. And you mentioned close reading. And I was trained as a as a literature scholar. I Actually, when I went into grad school, I couldn't decide if I should do a, a PhD in, in history or in, in literature. And I ended up going with literature <laughs> sort of thinking that I'd be able to do both, but also because, you know, I, I love literature. And as a writer, you know, I also wanted to always write in as literary a way as I could. But I do think that as a literature scholar, I continue to to bring certain uh, methodologies to bear on my research. And one of those is is close reading, which is something that literature scholars do. And it, it it's just another way of describing what everyone is taught to do in literature classes um, to look closely and to think very intentionally about your modes of analysis and mm. what aspects of, say, a letter or a text, uh, a memoir uh, can generate meaning. You know, sometimes in a poem, you know, it'll be the placement of a comma, right? Or the choice of a word. And I always love to really close read in this way because you're taking the smallest, tiniest little things and and figuring out the relationship of those tiny details to the much bigger meaning that a poem or a text can generate. And I think the same thing is true looking at the letters of these women um, or diplomatic dispatches. I mean, I just love diplomats in the Renaissance. They're so chatty 
And so many of our, our of what we know comes down to them. But sometimes it's like the tiniest little things that they say that are a hint into whether it's the mindset of any given woman on any particular day or a, a political strategy or a tactic. Sometimes it's like it's the smallest little thing or just, you know, um, a tiny detail that reveals the human side and not just of the women, but of the men. So like one of my favorite details about Philip II, right, this imposing king who's known, you know, he's he's always associated with the Spanish Armada, but that he was so nervous about holding his newborn when his newborn was baptized that he practiced for days with a doll. Mm. Kind of sweet, isn't <laughs> I, it? It's, I yeah. just, it's sweet yeah. and it's so human, yeah. right? I mean, it's so, and it's obvious that they're humans, but but we, we often don't see that. So I feel like when you look closely at these things, there are all these other stories that come to the surface. And that's how we can change the sort of overarching narrative of what's told of these historical figures, especially the women. Now, the audiobook version is brilliantly brought to life by Olivia Dowd, who's somebody I associate more with reading fiction. Was that a conscious decision on your and your publisher's behalf to get somebody with that range of different voices and intonations that the one-woman theatre that Olivia brings to a book? Yes. So first, let me just say, she just does an amazing job. I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so lucky to have Olivia Dowd narrate this book. Um, So, you know, I, I had four choices and I listened to all of them and they were all wonderful. But it was because Olivia narrates so much fiction and because she's able to narrate in that way that I went with her because it, it, it was very much in line with how I wrote the book. You know, I wanted it to unfold like a story. Mm. I wanted there to be suspense and this sort of narrative propulsion. And I, you know, I thought that she communicated that so well. And so, well, I'm just so pleased. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I think anything I was able to achieve in the writing, she just pushed that much further ahead. So, again, I'm I'm just grateful and really pleased that she was able to do it. Well, yeah, and she really gets the tension of the Mary Queen of Scots story and the murders. I mean, we haven't even had time to get onto the kind of murky world of what was happening up in Scotland when Mary returned there. But unfortunately, time is against us. I'm guessing that as a literature graduate, it was a really hard job that I gave you to select three books for the books of your life. But I'm afraid (laughs) it is that time of the show where I'm going to ask you, Is there a book that you read as a child that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Okay, so yes, it was hard. And because um, I'm going to cheat here, (laughs) (laughs) I will try to name one book. But okay, the, the, the answer for when I was a child is for sure The Little House Books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Mm -hmm. And so they are fiction, but they don't read like fiction. They read like narrative history. You know, Mm. I, I think a lot of us who grew up with those books assumed that this little girl on the prairie in 19th century America was actually telling us our actual history. And I know I was very disappointed to learn almost in adulthood 
that in fact they were quite fictionalized. But I actually think, you know, first of all, I completely fell in love with reading through those books. I also think on some level I can attribute my love of narrative history to those books because what they do is take the story of someone who doesn't seem that important. She's just a little girl on the prairie, you know. Uh, she's actually poor in 19th century America. And those books put her at the center of her own story in such a captivating way. Um, and it has to do with character. So, you know, I read those books over and over and over again. I've given them to my children. I think I fell in love with both history and literature and reading through those books. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? This is the most cliche answer <laughs> possible, <laughs> but it is truthful. It's Jane Austen, it's Pride and Prejudice. You asked that question, and I started to think about all sorts of other books. But when it's rainy and I just want to go back to something familiar, I, I, that's what I want to do when it's when it's rainy. I want to go back to something familiar and that I know I'm going to love. And I thought a lot about what it is about that book and Jane Austen in particular that that I love. And yes, it's the characters and yes, it's Mr. Darcy. But I actually think it's Jane Austen's turn of phrase. I love her prose. And so so I would have to say it, it would be that book. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yes. So I uh, recently read Maggie O'Farrell's The Marriage Portrait, and it's actually about the other branch of the Medici at the same time. So uh, Catherine de Medici's distant cousin, uh, the daughter of Cosimo de Medici. And I was struck because it actually gets at so many of the same themes that I was exploring in Young Queens about the dynastic pressures placed on young girls. And in Maggie O'Farrell's book, it, it is a novel. You know, what she's working off of is this actual historical fact about women who were, who were killed by their husbands, right? So we, we talk about sort of, you know, the price of power, the political pressures brought to bear on these young women, and sometimes it even led to their murder. But the one thing I want to say, and, and one reason why, you know, I love to think of it as a compliment, is that I actually think that historical fiction and history, particularly narrative history, but really any kind of history, um, really can work in tandem. You know, I, I don't see any kind of rivalry between historical fiction and history or or tension. I think they can really work in tandem to 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 help our understanding of these historical periods that were so long ago you know it's just it's a different way of approaching history and you have to be responsible with each form and and i i do think that maggie o'farrell is wonderfully responsible with history in the marriage portrait i mean it's also just so well written so it was beautiful i loved it Leah Redmond-Chang, thank you so much for sharing more of the story of Young Queens with us and for a fantastic selection of books of your life. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me on. It's time to turn the page on another edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Leah Redmond-Chang, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, 
So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to leaf through our back catalogue or drop us a line, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.